Well, that said, let's grab our Bibles, or if you have an app uh, on a device, you can turn your Bibles on, and let's go to Matthew chapter 1 together. Matthew chapter 1. Last Sunday, we kicked off a brand new series called Bloodlines. And in this series, we're talking through the bloodline or the family genealogy of Jesus. And I know upon first hearing that, it doesn't sound that exciting, but I can assure you it was highly significant back then, and it's still highly significant for us today. You see, in the ancient world, family genealogies were used to establish people's family heritages because certain inheritances and certain rights were tied to those heritages. Another way to think about it is this. Uh, They were used to legitimize people for certain purposes and certain privileges. Now, because that was the case, only the most important people in a family line were typically included. And it makes logical sense when you think about it. I mean, if I were going to stand before you today and legitimize myself by telling you all about my family, I'm probably not going to tell you about my weird cousin or my crazy uncle or that family member I always avoid at the family gatherings, or I'm just going to leave them out. And that happened all the time in biblical times, which is why it's so strange that Matthew included some of the people he included in the genealogy of Jesus. You see, his goal in Matthew 1 was to establish Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the promised Messiah, which would cause us to assume naturally that that he would only include those people in the family of Jesus that had things all together. But in fact, Matthew goes and he does the opposite. I mean, he includes people who committed incest. He included a, a prostitute, liars, adulterers, failed kings, and the list goes on and on. And the reason Matthew included their stories, I love this, don't miss it. He included their stories to remind us that their stories are really the point of the Jesus story. Here's what we learned last week, and if you're taking notes, you can write this down again. We learned that Jesus came from broken people for broken people. And when the Son of God came off of his throne in heaven 2,000 years ago, and he came to live among us, that he didn't come for the self-righteous, he came for the sinners. He didn't come for those, those religious people who would come before God in pride and arrogance and make their case based on their good behavior as to why God should love and accept them. No, he came for those people who know they're spiritually sick, who know they're broken, who know they need the mercy and grace of God. And today, as we dig back into Matthew 1, we're going to look at two of those broken, spiritually sick people that Matthew includes. All right, so if your Bibles are open, uh, we're just going to cover one verse today. It's Matthew 1, verse 1, so read it with me. Here's what he says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, I mentioned this briefly last Sunday, but I'll mention it again. Matthew started here on purpose. You see, he was writing to a primarily Jewish audience, and if his audience was, if his audience was gonna take Jesus seriously, the first thing they would have wanted to know is, is this Jesus guy related to Abraham? Is this Jesus guy related to David? Because God gave those two men some family promises directly related to the Messiah he would one day send into the world. And we're gonna spend some time talking about those promises, all right? We'll start with Abraham. And by the way, before we get going, let me just say this. I'm going to paraphrase a lot today, and so as you listen to me tell these stories, make some notes of the passages that I I, uh, refer to, and spend some time this week on your own time just reading through them, all right? 
So here we go. Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, God comes to Abraham and he establishes with him what's known as the Abrahamic covenant. He says to Abraham, uh, hey, go to this land that I'll show you. Like leave everything behind, pack up your stuff, leave behind your family, your possessions, um, all that's been familiar, familiar to you your entire life. Go to this land that I'm going to show you. Now imagine being Abraham, like put yourself in his shoes for a moment, if you will. Can you imagine if that was you, like your mind and your own business and God shows up on your doorstep one day and he says, hey, pack up everything and leave. What would your first question be? Uh, God, where am I going, right? Now imagine God says back to you, don't worry about it, just go and I'll let you know when you've gotten there. It's crazy, isn't it? And it sounds like something only a crazy person would do. And uh, maybe Abraham was a little crazy. I don't know. But we know from the Bible he was a man of great faith. And so he packed up all his stuff and he went. And in light of his going, God gave him some incredible promises. I'll show them to you. Here they are. First, God promised him a son. He promised Abraham that he'd be the father of a great nation. That his descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky. He promised uh, Abraham that he would give that nation of people who would descend from him land to live in. He promised him that he'd make his name great, that he'd bless those who blessed him, curse those who dishonored him, and that ultimately he'd bless all the families of the earth through him. So here was God's commitment to Abraham. I'll make it simple. He says to him, Abraham, I'm going to use you to raise up a nation of people for myself. This was the nation of Israel. He says, I'm going to be their God. They're going to be my people. I'm going to love them, bless them, provide for them, protect them. And I'm going to bless all the families of the earth by bringing my son, your savior into the world through them. So you see promise eight here. This was a foreshadowing, a foreshadowing promise that God gave to this man that spoke of the coming Messiah. Now let's turn our attention to David. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, we find David, who's the king over Israel at the time, having a conversation with a prophet named Nathan. And he says to Nathan, here I am, the king, living in this house made of cedar. So in other words, he was living in a nice house. And he says, but the ark, where the presence of God dwells, it's living in a tent. And he basically says, this isn't right. Like, how can I live like this when God is living like that? So I'm going to build God a house. Well, on that very night, this is so incredible to me, God comes to Nathan and he says, Nathan, go back and tell David, he's not going to build me a house, I'm going to build him a house. And through the prophet Nathan, David establishes, or I'm sorry, God establishes with David what's known as the Davidic covenant. And he gives him some incredible, incredible promises. Here they are. God promised David that he'd make his name great. He promised a secure and peaceful homeland for Israel. He promised rest from all of his enemies. He promised to give David a dynasty of offspring. He promised a kingdom that would last forever. And then finally, he promised that from David's family line, that he would provide a royal son who would ultimately belong to him. That's God. And so here's the commitment. He says to David again, "Uh, bro, you're not building me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And through that royal house, I'm going to establish my kingdom on the earth. That kingdom will have no end. It will be eternal. And ultimately, through your line, I will send a king into the world who will rule over my people forever. So just like in the Abrahamic covenant, we see in the Davidic covenant a foreshadowing, a promise that speaks to the coming Messiah. Now listen, with all that said, doesn't it make a whole lot of sense now as to why Matthew would start here? 
why in chapter one, verse one, he would talk about those two guys. His audience would have wanted to know, is Jesus related to Abraham? Is he in his family? Is he related to David? Did he come from that kingly bloodline? Because they knew if that's not the case, he's not the one. And so Matthew, right here in verse one, he addresses their concerns and he says, this Jesus I'm getting ready to tell you about, he's the son of David, the son of Abraham, he's the one. Now, I don't know how much you know about Abraham and David. You know, if you haven't spent much time reading the Bible, if you haven't spent much time around church, you might assume that the reason God gave those promises to those two men were due to their incredible qualifications and their outstanding character, you know? That God was surveying the earth and he's going, man, who do I build my family through? Who do I establish my kingdom through? And lo and behold, he found these two awesome guys, Abraham and David. But hear me, that wasn't the case. These two men weren't in any way qualified or deserving of those promises God made them. You see, Abraham, when God showed up on his doorstep, he was a pagan, far from the Lord. God was nowhere on his radar. Uh, When God went and sought out David, he was a shepherd hanging out with sheep each day. That's insane, isn't it? I mean, if you're the God of the universe and you want to build your family on the earth and establish your kingdom on the earth, are you gonna pick a pagan to be the father of your people and a shepherd boy to be their king? Probably not. Well, in addition to that, what fascinates me is the fact that throughout these men's lifetimes, they committed some major sins and major failures that, may, that might make some of us wonder today why God ever made promises to them in the first place. And I want you to understand that, so we're gonna take a few minutes and talk about their failures, all right? We'll start again with Abraham. When God came to Abraham and he gave them, uh, him a promise of a son and descendants, Abraham was 75 years old. His wife, Sarah, was 65 years old. Can you imagine getting those promises at that age? Right, like I'm sure part of it, like on one hand, it had to be exciting because this couple was childless and God's finally telling them, hey, you're gonna have a baby. I'm sure on the other hand, it was like, God, do you know how old we are? You know, like, how are we going to chase around a newborn baby and a toddler? God, we're going to be that couple at the kids' baseball games who everybody thinks are the grandparents and we're really the parents. It's going to be weird, you know. It had to be surprising. But I think what was more surprising was that God didn't come through on this promise until 25 years later. He made this couple wait before he sent them that promised son. Now, I'd love to tell you today that this couple was patient and they walked in faith the entire 25 years. They trusted God, but that didn't happen. 10 years into waiting, Abraham and Sarah had a crisis of faith. They decided, you know, um, God, I know he made us this promise, but it doesn't look like he's gonna come through and do the impossible for us, so we'll just take matters into our own hands. And so Sarah goes to Abraham one day, and she says to her husband, you need to sleep with my servant Hagar, so that she can birth a child for us. Now, back in that time, that was culturally acceptable. Like if you were a woman and you couldn't have children, as a wife, it was customary for you to allow your husband to sleep with your servant so that she could birth a child for you as a couple. But hear me, look up here for a moment, if you will. Just because something is culturally acceptable doesn't mean it's acceptable to God. That'll preach all day, won't it? Like, I'm sure that many of us in the room could probably think of at least a few things that our culture celebrates right now that God doesn't celebrate. I need you to know that Abraham sleeping with Hagar was one of those things. 
But Abraham, nonetheless, he does the culturally acceptable thing and he sleeps with his wife's servant. He gets her pregnant and nine months later, she gives birth to a baby boy named Ishmael. Now, here's what we know about Ishmael. The Bible says that he was a wild donkey of a man. Not a very flattering nickname to be given, you know, but that's who he was. This guy showed up, and uh, a short time later, his younger brother, the promised son, Isaac, showed up, and Ishmael terrorized his younger brother. We also know that Ishmael went on to have 12 sons, and from those 12 sons came descendants who continued to terrorize the descendants of Abraham and Isaac. And hear me, it continues on until this day. If you look out across the Middle East, what you will find is a region full of people, and this isn't true of all the people there, but it is true of many of them there, they hate the people of God. They hate the nation of Israel. They practice hostility against the descendants of Abraham and Isaac. And guess who many of those people descended from? Ishmael, which reminds us that one bad decision can have lasting consequences. Listen to me, it was that guy's dad, it was Abraham that God promised to use to establish his family on the earth. It was Abraham that God picked to use to to build his family so that one day he could send his son into the world. Now, let's turn our attention to David. This is a heavy story, heartbreaking story, um, but it's a story that we need to pay attention to because there's a lot we can learn from it. 2 Samuel chapter 11, we read that the army of Israel was away at war and David, who was the king of Israel, was for some reason at home. It was really strange because his duty as king would have required him to be on the battlefield with his men. Well, one day, while he's all alone, he decides to take a walk on the roof of his palace, and the Bible says across the way, he sees a beautiful naked woman taking a bath. And so he sends someone from his palace to go check it out. Well, that person brings back word, and they say, David, that's Bathsheba. She's the wife of one of the soldiers in your army. But she wasn't the wife of just any soldier. She was the wife of one of David's top soldiers. You see, in the army of Israel, there was a group of 37 men known as David's mighty men. They were basically like a special ops type of crew, right? They walked with the king. They had his back. They were his friends. He was closest to those 37 guys. Well, David hears this, and he goes, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me that she's married to one of those guys. Uh, And so he sends for her. He sleeps with her. And David, the king of Israel, gets this woman pregnant. Well, he realizes, uh oh, I have a problem because anybody with a brain can do the math and figure out that her husband isn't the one that got her pregnant because he's away at war. And so David does what all men do when things go wrong. He goes into fix it mode, right? Like, how do I fix this? How do I cover up what I've done? And so he devises a plan. He decides that he's going to bring Uriah home from the battlefield that he's gonna tell this guy to go home, to get some rest, to sleep in his own bed, to sleep with his wife. And after he sleeps with his wife, he'll be off the hook because everyone will naturally assume that he's the one that got her pregnant. Well, Uriah comes home. And on night one, instead of going home and sleeping in his bed and with his wife, he crashes on David's front porch. And the next day, David just says to Uriah, like, what's this about, man? Why, Why didn't you go home last night? And Uriah proves in that moment that he has more integrity than David. And he says to him, my brothers are out there sleeping on the battlefield. Out of loyalty to them and loyalty to you as my king, I cannot go home and sleep in my bed with my wife. 
And so this leaves David kind of scratching his head, like, uh-oh, like I'm gonna have to take pl- the plan next level, and so he does. He invites Uriah to dinner, and he purposely gets Uriah drunk. He's thinking, if I could get this brother wasted enough, he'll go home, and in his drunken stupor, he'll sleep with his wife, I'll be off the hook. But the problem is, night two, same thing happens. Like, I don't know if Uriah wasn't drunk enough or he was too drunk, but again, he crashes on David's front porch, and David gets up the next morning, and in a panic, he comes up with the grand finale to his plan. He decides, I'm going to send Uriah back to the battlefield. But before he goes, he puts a letter in Uriah's hand addressed to Joab, who was the commander of the army of Israel. And I just want to read to you what the letter said because it's almost hard to believe. Look at this with me. It'll be up here. 2 Samuel 11, verse 15. In the letter, David wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. How insane is this? So David's plan is, I'll just kill the guy. If I can't convince him to go home and to sleep with his wife, I'll have him murdered. And everyone will naturally assume that because he had a home visit, he slept with his wife while he was here, got her pregnant, he won't be alive to defend himself, I'll be off the hook. I mean, think about that. In a short time, David, the king of Israel, he sleeps with a married woman, gets her pregnant, and kills her husband. That's the guy God picked to be a king to his people. That's the guy God picked to establish one day his eternal king and eternal kingdom here on the earth. So what in the world do we learn from that? Like what do we learn from all those incredible promises God gave those men along with the massive sins and failures they committed? Well, here's what we learned. One big idea for today's message, and if you're taking notes, write it down. We learn from Abraham and we learn from David that when people fail, God remains faithful. That when people fail, God remains faithful. I don't know about you, I am so grateful for the faithfulness of God because God knows that James Griffin is a failure. I have failed him time and time and time again throughout my life and I'm so grateful today that I can know and trust to believe because of what I see in the scriptures and because of what I see in stories like Abraham's and David's that every time I fail because I belong to God as a love son in his family that he will continue to be faithful to me. When people fail, God remains faithful. Now, we're gonna break this down and talk about it because I, I really wanna unpack this together because I want you to leave today understanding all the implications of what this means, all right? So let's talk. When people fail... Notice that I didn't say if people fail. I said when people fail. Because failure is inevitable, isn't it? You can be the godliest, holiest person in this room today, and at times you will fail the Lord. You'll fail to walk in obedience. You'll fail to walk according to his ways and his purposes. And how you respond in those moments of failure matters immensely. I'll give you two wrong ways to respond. Um, One wrong way to respond is by what I'll call license. The idea is this. uh, You know, I've already failed. I might as well keep failing. I'm gonna give myself permission to just keep getting it wrong. I mean, what's the point of getting it right if God loves me and he's gonna forgive me anyway? I'll just live how I want and do what I want and make myself feel better by claiming the grace of God. Can I tell you the problem with living and thinking that way? Look, it's this book. You run into a problem here. 
In 1 John 3, verse 9, John, he says, no one who's been born of God makes a practice of sinning because God's seed abides in him and he can't continue sinning because he's been born of God. In Romans 6, verse 1, the apostle Paul says, should we continue in sin so that grace may abound? He says, absolutely not. That's crazy. By no means, how can we who died to sin still live in it? This book is full of those types of verses, and they remind us of a very simple point. Here it is, that if you and I have truly tasted and experienced the grace of God giving to us, given us in Jesus Christ, we understand that the grace of God is something to be adored, not something to be abused. You don't see the cross of Jesus any longer as a pass to persist in sin. You see it as a tool that God uses to break the chains of sin in your life. Which means that, that you're not going to abuse the grace of God and take advantage of it. And if you do, you have question or reason to question whether or not you've actually received it. The second wrong way to respond in moments of failure is with uh, what I'll call legalism. Legalism. Legalism says this. I've failed, therefore I need to work hard and make up to God for my failures. I'm going to go to church more, I'm going to pray more, serve more, read my Bible more, give more. I'm just going to do more because I need to make up to God for all that I've done wrong and I need to prove to him that I'm a person worthy of his love and acceptance. Now listen, I know in our very performance-based culture, that may sound very noble to some of us, but it is a highly dangerous way to think and live and here's why. Because legalism basically says to God, I don't need your grace. God, I know I've messed up but I've got what it takes within myself to cover my sins and failures. To put it another way, the legalist says to God, the cross of Jesus Christ was pointless. He died for no reason because I, through my good behavior and my hard work, God, I can prove myself to be worthy of your acceptance. Do you hear how dangerous that is? Listen, if those are the wrong ways to respond to failure, what's the right way? Well, it's really simple. Here it is, you ready? In moments of failure, Remember the faithfulness of God. That's it. In moments of failure, remember the faithfulness of God. You see, it's the faithfulness of God that leads you to repentance. And repentance leads you back into right fellowship with him. And so let's make it real practical. Let's say that you fail. You fall into sin. You do something that, that, that obviously challenges God or, or defies his way of life. You have three options in that moment of failure, right? Right? You can go, I've just messed up, I'll continue messing up, I'll live in defeat, and I'll just keep failing him, or I'm gonna pull myself up by the bootstraps and work really hard and and show God that I'm sorry and that I feel bad and I'm gonna do better, or you can be that person who comes before the Lord and says, God, I failed you, and I'm here to remember your faithfulness, even to failures like me. And God, right now, I'm confessing my sin, and I am confessing my a failure, and I'm asking you in your faithfulness to meet me with grace and mercy and to restore me and to forgive me and to cleanse me of what I've done. God, would you bring me back into right fellowship with you and keep working on, on me? Response number three is the right response. Are you with me? And so that begs the question, if we're gonna remember the faithfulness of God, what do we need to remember about the faithfulness of God? Well, I want to give you two things to remember about his faithfulness in moments of failure. And we see both of these things reflected in the stories of Abraham and David. The first thing is this. You need to always remember that God finishes what he begins. God always finishes what he begins. 
God began a work in Abraham's life, as I said earlier, when he was a pagan, far from the Lord. God wasn't on his radar. God began a work in David's life when he was a shepherd boy, like hanging out, defending sheep, caring for sheep. And what I love is in, in spite of those men's failures, God brought the work that he began in them through to completion. And the good news for us is if we know Jesus Christ, the same thing applies to us. In the book of Philippians, chapter one, verse six, Paul writes this to the church of Philippi. He says, I'm sure of this, that he, that's God, who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul's reminding his readers and he's reminding us that God's committed to us. So much so that starting at the moment we put our faith in Christ as Savior, God goes to work on us and he starts changing us and he continues that work throughout our lifetimes until the day we finally show up and we see Jesus face to face and in that moment God finishes his work and he makes us like his son. How incredible is that? So you need to know your spiritual progress doesn't depend so much on what you've done and are doing as much as it depends on what God has done and is doing. Does this make sense? Now look up here. You need to hear this. That does not mean that you won't take some detours throughout your life as a result of your sinful decisions. Some of you know what I'm talking about, right? Some of you know that you can know Jesus and still make some very poor, unwise, sinful decisions and completely take yourself off the path that God wanted you on all along. This was certainly true in Abraham's life. He took a detour as a result of taking the promises of God into his own hands. David took a detour as a result of committing adultery and murder. It wrecked his family. It split the kingdom. But what I love is the fact that neither of these men ended up at dead ends. Their sin caused them to take detours, but they never arrived at a dead end. And if you know Jesus Christ today, you can know that the same is always true for you. You might take some detours through life, but you'll never end up at a dead end because our God doesn't do dead ends. He's faithful in that way. He always finishes the work we or he begins in us regardless of what we do. And this is so counterintuitive, isn't it? I mean, to think that that you can totally hijack and mess up your life and God and his faithfulness and his great love for you will show up in your life and go, I can use that. I can use that. I know you think that you're done after what you've done, but I can take what you've done and I can use it to continue changing you and transforming you into the person I desire you to be. Even your sin and failures cannot mess up God's ultimate plan for your life. He's faithful, and he always finishes what he begins. The second thing to remember about the faithfulness of God is this, that he always performs what he promises. Always. He made Abraham a promise, right? And, and at the beginning, it was a conditional promise. If you go to the land, I'll show you. I will bless you. I will make you the father of a great nation. Abraham could have said, no, don't want it. And, and God could have gone to someone else, but Abraham walked in obedience, and so the promise became his. And at that point, it became unconditional Nothing he would ever do again could negate that promise that God gave him. Uh, God gave David a promise. I'm going to build a house for you. And through that royal house, I will bring my king and my kingdom into the earth, and my king will rule over my people forever. And in spite of those men's failures, I love this, God kept up his end of the deal. They messed up their end of the deal, but God kept his because he always performs what he promises. You see, his promises, hear me, are not dependent on our goodness They are dependent upon his grace. 
God never lies to his people. And he always does for us exactly what he says he will do. And I know that is counter to what some of us have experienced in life. Because some of us showed up today and we are the byproducts of broken promises, aren't we? We've been lied to our whole life. Parents lie to us. Our friends have lied to us. We've had spouses lie to us. People that should have loved us deeply have broken our hearts and our lives over and over and over again. So we're skeptical of promises, even God's promises. And if that's you, as we get ready to wrap up our time, can I just encourage you? Listen, if you ever find yourself doubting the promises of God for you, doubting the love of God for you, look to Jesus. Remember the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God's greatest promise to mankind. And I love this. That promise that God made to mankind came to a bunch of failures. It's insane to think about that in the Old Testament, God kept promising his people centuries before Jesus showed up, I'm going to send a savior. I'm going to send a savior. My son's coming. A Messiah is coming. I know you haven't kept up your end of this deal, but I'm going to keep up my end of the deal. He's coming and he will right all of the wrong that exists between us. He sent that promise to a bunch of people, the nation of Israel, who walked in disobedience, worshiped idols, abandoned him time and time again. Why would he give a promise like that to a bunch of people like that? Simple. Because perfect people don't need saviors. Imperfect people need saviors. Broken people, people far from God like us are the ones who need saviors. Jesus came to this earth for you and me. In his faithfulness, God came off of his throne in heaven and he pursued us when we were at our worst. And if you ever doubt that God's gonna come through for you, again, look to Jesus because he's the one that reminds us that when people fail, when people fail, God remains faithful. And a quick story and we're done. Um, I think one of the things that's taught me so much about the faithfulness of God in my life is being a dad to my own kids. Just this past week on Tuesday morning, Uh, My daughter, she's five years old. She's getting ready for school. And she calls me into her bathroom and she's getting ready to brush her teeth. And she says, daddy, I want to use this toothbrush. And she's holding her baby sister's toothbrush in her hand. And so I start to explain, well, that's your baby sister's toothbrush. You can't use that. It's hers. And you're not a baby. You know, you're a big girl. Use your own toothbrush. Well, then she says to me, but daddy, my toothbrush doesn't fit into the hole on the toothbrush holder. So in that moment, I'm going, I don't even know how to work with this. You know, like, what do, I, what do I say to that? And so I just explain again what I've already said. You're a big girl. That's your baby's toothbrush. You can't use her toothbrush. And so at 7 o'clock in the morning, my daughter has this meltdown. And she's screaming. And she's crying. And she's losing her mind over a toothbrush. And I'm sitting there just thinking, how does she get so stubborn? And why is she so hard-headed and, and argumentative and my gosh, I just don't want to do this at seven o'clock in the morning. But even in that moment, I would have given my life for that little girl. That's who God is for us. We're a stubborn people, a hard-headed people, a sinful people who on many days just want to do what we want to do. But God, his great love for us has proven his faithfulness by giving up his own life for a bunch of failures. And I believe some of us in the room today need to experience the faithfulness and grace of God for the first time. We've never come to a point when we've put our faith in Jesus as that Savior God sent for us. 
And if that's you and, and you need him today, I want to help you say yes to Jesus as your Savior right now. So all over the room, let's just bow our heads and close our eyes. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come and to get in their places. Listen, if you are that person who showed up today and you're sitting there thinking to yourself, man, I, I'm a failure in so many ways. Like I've, I've blown it time and time again. I failed people in my life. I know that I have failed God in more ways than one. And you know that there's never come a point in your life when you have come before God in humility and in surrender and said to him, God, I need you. You've never put your faith in Jesus. You've never trusted in him as the one God sent to do a work in your life. And if that's you, if you need God's grace today, if you need your life to change today, if you need peace and joy that you've never known today, right now in prayer, why don't you just say something like this to God? Just say, God, I need you. I know I'm a failure. But God, I believe that you're faithful even to people like me. And so God, I'm putting my faith in Jesus's death on the cross for my sins. I'm putting my faith in his resurrection from the dead so that I can have new and eternal life with you. God, would you today forgive me of all my sins and failures, past, present, and future. God, take control of my life. And God, would you change me and transform me into the person you created me to be. I say yes to Jesus. Listen, with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if you just prayed that or something like that, I want to ask you to do me a simple favor, nothing weird, and, and uh, I'm not going to call you out, but if you just made that decision, would you acknowledge that by just lifting a hand? James, that's me, man. Just put my faith in Jesus as my Savior right now in this moment. Just throw it up real high. Our prayer team's going to come and put a resource in your hand as soon as you receive it, you can put your hand back down. Just throw it up real high where we can see it. They're coming. Just keep your hand up. Awesome. Anybody else? Anybody else? Awesome. Well, as we're still in this moment with our heads bowed and eyes closed, um, let me just speak to those of you in the room who know Christ. Maybe you walked in today and you feel like a failure in some area of your life. And maybe you're that a person who has been abusing the grace of God. You've been taking advantage of his forgiveness and you've just continued to persist in that sin in your life. Or, or maybe you're that person who, you know, you've been working hard to overcome it by yourself, to prove to God that, that you're better than that. You're walking in legalism today. Whoever you are, if that's you, I just want to say, why don't you come and lay those wrong responses down? And as we respond in the next few moments, why don't you come before the Lord and just remember his faithfulness to you and allow it to bring you to a place of confession, a place of dependency yet again in which God can meet you where you are and continue working on your life to make you into that person that he desires you to be. Father, we love you, and we're so thankful for your love for us. God, in the next few moments, would you just pour your spirit out in this place? God, allow him to move and to work in our lives in ways that only he can. God, we commit this time to you. We love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name.